0: Welcome to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If you're new to the podcast, I welcome you. If you're a returning listener, thank you. Tales has been downloaded in over 250 cities worldwide, 15 countries, four continents, So I thank all of you that have listened and certainly all of you that have come back for more. In this week's episode, I'll explore some things I witnessed on the first tee in the past week or so. I'll talk about a clinic that I attended where I learned more about using the bounce on wedges. The new rangefinder rule, or DMDs as they're referred to, distance measuring devices. But first, I want to talk about my thoughts on the Tiger Woods crash and things that I'm hearing on the first tee. So, as I've always said, sit down, relax, grab your favorite libation, your favorite strain, your favorite brand of smoke. If you're driving, please keep your eyes on the road. Which leads me to the Tiger Woods incident. I think we all acquire information differently. I get a lot of my news from Twitter, news feeds. Sometimes I'll even be watching the news on television. Oh, that's a rarity these days. Or I'll have friends tell me, hey, did you hear? And if I hadn't heard, well, I have now. I happened to be reading Twitter last week when all of a sudden I got this quick message about Tiger having an accident. And like many people, a lot of things started going through my head. This is not the first time he's had an accident. It's not the first time he's been stopped. But, I did, you know, he just came off a great weekend where he was sponsoring a tournament. And he couldn't play because of a back injury. And so I wanted to read more about what was going on. And so I learned. It was early in the morning. He was going uh, for this Genesis shoot in one of the Genesis cars. And there was an accident and it was a horrible accident. And when you see the pictures of the car, I mean, I am surprised that he got out alive. I think a lot of people are. And so I wanted to hear more. And I just every time I can get a news feed and I tend to find that you get more accurate news within 24 and 48 hours than you do in the first hour of anything happening because everybody's reacting. And so Again, we learn he's going to the shoot. He had just done a few things the day before with certain celebrities, and he was going back in the morning. And quite frankly, I don't know what happened and how his car ended up where it ended up and how it rolled over. I have no idea. And I'm going to let all the forensic scientists figure that out. And the Department of Transportation, whoever is involved in doing the postmortem on this, I'll let them figure it out. You know, quite frankly, the how it happened is not as important to me as the fact that he's alive and they had to do some major work on his leg. Whether he'll ever play again, you know, that's to be determined. If anybody can recover from something like this and come back and play professional golf, he'd be the guy that I'd pick. And what I've read and what I've heard from all of the media services – Having your right leg go through that is going to be treacherous. He's going to be challenged with recovery. He's going to be challenged with walking without a limp. But we're talking about Tiger Woods. The arc of this guy's character is so interesting to me. Because as I've spoken about before in other podcasts, his upbringing with a father like Earl was so focused on improving his golf and so focused on eliminating distraction that he became a machine and he was a cold-blooded killer on the golf course. And then he went through some troubling times in his life and injuries and all kinds of things that got in the way of his golf performance and he comes back. And it seems like he comes back as a different person. The interviews that you see after all the golf events, the interaction that he has with his son in the father-son challenge, um, shows the world, certainly me, that you know this guy has some personal growth. And so, even after this last surgery he had in December, I had hope, and I'm sure the world did as well that he could come back. And win some more, maybe another major or so, but certainly more tournaments. Because quite frankly, when he's leading the charge and he is winning, that is just juice for the airwaves. I like it. I look forward to watching him play really well. It's great to see somebody like that, now he's 45 years old, be able to perform better than these 20-something year kids that are hitting the ball 350, 400 yards. So I feel for him. I'd like to see him come back, and so would the rest of the world. But he's facing something much larger than that. He's facing recovery from from probably the biggest injuries he's ever had in his life. And I hope he recovers well. And I hope that the arc of his character continues where he becomes the teacher. He helps others get to places where they couldn't have gotten without him. He develops his son, Charlie, if that's what Charlie wants to do, because I think there's no other person in the golf industry that could have this type of influence on the world. So I keep my fingers crossed. I hope the best for him. A few very odd interactions happened at the first tee within the last several months, and I thought I'd share them, so here are some stories. For the purpose of this story and to protect the innocent, I'll just give you a fictitious name of this guy that I met. Johnny McDouchebag. So John and I start talking, and... The conversation starts off nice. I actually really liked it. He starts off telling me that he's down in Charleston and he's playing a bunch of courses this week. So obviously he, he, he sets the hook and I'm like, so where are you playing? He goes, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to practice here at Charleston National, but for the next few days I'm playing Yehman's Hall, Bulls Bay, Daniel Island, and Cacique. Now these are four exclusive Golf club. So obviously, he has to know somebody, or he had his head pro at his private club call up some of these clubs. So I even said, Oh, do you know a member at any of these clubs here? He goes, Well, I know Troy Miller. And he goes on, and I know that Troy's the architect who did uh, the new revision of Charleston's municipal golf course. And he goes, Yeah, I know Troy Miller, and, you know, Troy's going to get me on. And I'm like, Yeah, you know, I guess. And at this time, the course was not ready yet. Charleston Municipal hadn't been finished yet. And I know Troy had done it. And I know he did it for free because he's from the area, which I thought was a great story. And I just go to the guy. I guess the municipal course is going to be later than they expected. Well. The conversation makes an entire left turn from this point on. We start off talking about all these exclusive golf courses, and I'm thinking he's just a Southern gentleman who knows some people, and he's going to play some of these nice courses. But let me tell you, this thing goes far left. He starts saying, well, the reason that the golf course is late in finishing its reconstruction at Charleston Municipal Is because of these stupid COVID restrictions. And I'm like, well, you don't say. Maybe there's something I didn't know about. He goes, yeah, he goes, people have to wear masks. Some people can't work certain days. They have to have different shifts. He says, the pandemic is bullshit. It's a ruse. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And he goes on and he's talking about how this whole thing is made up. It's made up by the liberals, it's not real. You know, if there's any truth to it, it started in China. Trump's right about this. And I am like, oh, my God, where is this conversation going to go? And then he goes on to say, what are you, a Democrat or a Republican? Which team, which are you? And I'm like, well, give me the issue and I'll tell you exactly how I feel about it and why. Well, he didn't like that at all. The fact that I was going to ask him to talk about issues was way more detailed than he wanted to get into. He's like, that is just bullshit. You got to be one team or the other. There is a civil war on, in an uprising and you got to pick a team. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I have to pick a team. I mean, Johnny McDouchebag actually came up to the first team not even to play. He wanted to find out where the range was so he could practice to play some of these other courses he was going to play. So in all of this conflict, I had to give him directions on how to get up to the to the range, which wasn't just right around the corner. I mean, at this point, John McDouchebag was just getting out of control and he was getting energized. He was getting angry. And then he starts talking about Antifa and how they're the problem. And I'm like, well, you know. what what about Charlottesville? And he's like, that's bullshit. He goes, there's not a racial problem in the United States. I'm like, there's not. Go talk to one of our assistant pros and Justin, who was working that way. Go talk to Justin. He might give you his perspective. And this guy is like, that's bullshit. He goes, you're bullshit. And he turns around and he walks to his car and I'm like, Why do people have to be that way? And what really surprised me is here is a guy who is playing all these exclusive golf courses, probably either comes from money or knows people with a lot of money. And that doesn't give you class. That just gives you money and influence. So John McDouchebag, good riddance totally wrong about this, but I'm pretty certain I saw him on January 6th in front of the Capitol with some kind of sign in his hand. Who knows? I've been wrong about other things. In previous episodes, I've shared some experiences I've had with guys actually going to fisticuffs on the golf course. And it usually has to do with a bet and perceived cheating and then people that just won't take it anymore. So it's typically a situation that is elevated over time. And particularly in the story that I told, it was two brothers who have been dealing with this and dealing with each other for 40 to 50 years. And so they've had to go at it with each other forever. That being said, it's very rare sitting on the first tea box to hear people argue. There might be some negotiations about handicaps and then you might get some laughter and you might be uh, get some guys that are challenging other guys on what the real handicap is. But rarely do you find people agitated on the first tee. So here we are Friday morning a few days ago and I'm sitting at the first tee. I'm checking in other people. The weather is getting better. So there are a lot more people coming to play earlier and I hear these guys arguing on the first tee box, and you can't miss it. First of all, when you're outside, voices carry. You could be on the first tee box, and people can hear you across the street at the clubhouse. They could hear you at the 10th tee box. They could even hear you at the 13th green. We're talking 100, 200 yards away. Voices just carry outside. So now these guys are going at it like it's their own private golf club and nobody else is around. And the conversation kind of goes like this. Two guys who I guess had played together the day before. And for the purpose of this story, let's call them Joe and Pete. Joe turns around. There's a foursome there. And apparently Joe and Pete play a lot of golf together. And I've been with guys like this before. It's almost like a couple that's been married for 50 years and just can't get along, but can't figure out how to get a divorce. So these two guys have played a lot of golf together and they played the other day. And Joe turns to two of the other guys that haven't been playing with them and starts explaining an incident from yesterday's round of golf to the other two guys. Within the first sentence, as Joe starts explaining this, Pete interrupts and gives his point of view. Joe interrupts Pete. Pete interrupts Joe. Neither one of them are letting the other one tell the story. And it had something to do with a guy chipping up and having his ball come somewhere close to the hole and then going ahead, putting it in, and picking their ball up and say, got it. And, well, obviously, the other guy didn't see it that way. But nonetheless... It's an incident that happened the day before. Who gives a shit? Well, these two guys give a shit. And they kept going back. And I could see the other two guys. The two other guys are almost like, why are we playing with these guys? And why do we have to hear this? I mean, the first tee has enough angst just trying to get the ball out in the fairway and start your round without listening to Joe and Pete. And so they keep going back and forth. And I just step up and I just go, how long you guys been married? And I think it was Joe turned around and said, now we've been through a hard divorce. And he starts laughing. Well, Joe comes back to his bag. He's still angry. Pete gets up. Now he's got to hit the ball. Pete hits a shot and his ball starts fading to the right. It wasn't a good shot. Starts fading to the right. Hits this tree off to the right side of the fairway. Bounces off the tree. Goes in the trap. Joe sees it and (laughs) yells out, that one off the tree. That's in the trap. Shitty shot. You're going to have a tough time par in this hole. And, and he, as he's getting in his cart, I go, guys, I, I know you're going through this divorce and stuff, but you guys seem like you've played a lot of golf together. He goes, we have, but that guy's moving to Arizona Sunday, and it can't come soon enough. And I'm thinking to myself, why do these guys do it to themselves? Why do they play with each other when all it's going to do is continually have them fight against each other? It, it's like brothers, but these guys were horrible and everybody else standing behind me at the tee box were just putting their heads down and turning the other way. I mean, what a disaster. What a way to start your round of golf. It just made me think, I wonder if these guys know Johnny McDouchebag because they were just like him. I'm sitting at the first tee the other day and I tend to like to watch golfers tee off. I like to see different swings and I really enjoy when I see a really good golfer hit a really good ball. Their trajectory, the sound, just the swing itself. Um, you know, maybe I learned something in watching, you know, something about their backswing or their follow through. Most people that come to Charleston National to the first tee are faced with a very difficult starting hole. There are very few starting holes in Charleston, in this market that are like Charleston National. I would say Rivertown would be one like it too. Very intimidating first hole. And so uh, because the driving range is so far away from the first tee at Charleston National, a lot of times guys are coming out of their cars, Closing the trunk, throwing their their clubs on a cart, and racing across the street to get to the first tee. Some guys are still tying their shoes when they get to the tee box. So there's a lot of unpreparedness to play one of the toughest starting holes. So a lot of guys will allow their playing partners and their competitors to hit a second ball off the first tee if they need to, right? So it's almost like a going rule that mulligan on the first hole. It's almost a known fact. And so what surprises me is when guys get up to the first tee, hit a shitty drive, and they don't have a second ball with them. It's like they don't have a second ball in their pocket. And that means they've got to look at their playing partners to throw them a ball. And not many people want to give up their golf balls, particularly to a guy who just hit his first one in the woods. And so they're typically going to go back to their bag get a ball out and walk back up to the first tee. And that's like there and back is probably like 25 or 30 yards. So it's taking more time. And meanwhile, you have all these golfers watching other golfers on the first tee because a lot of people get there early. They're waiting to hit their shots and they like to look up. And everybody also has the same, everybody's perplexed. Like, why wouldn't that guy have a second ball? Like I know in professional golf, you will never, rarely ever, See a golfer with other than one ball when they tee off. They're not going to have a ball in their pocket. That's because if they have a bad shot and they have to reload, they just look at their caddy. They put out their hand, caddy throws them or gives them another ball, kind of like tin cup. And so, and even in college, these guys have their bags, they're carrying their bags with them. So the bag is pretty close to the tee box. They could take two steps over, pull a ball out, but they rarely ever have another ball or multiple balls in their pockets. But most people coming to play Charleston National, most semi-private and public courses, are going to come up to the first tee box with a second ball. They're not pros. They're not playing in college. It's not a tournament. And so they should be prepared. So I started looking up, like, what do people carry with them for the most part when they play? And it's really interesting to see... Most of the articles that I read would suggest, well, I'm going to have three T's, a ball marker, and a lot of people have significance to their ball marker, whether it's a silver dollar or some kind of sphere disc, you know, the shape of a quarter that has some significance. The big thing these days is like uh, chips, like betting chips, but they're not actually from casinos. They're actually made by a lot of manufacturers to have their names on it. But the betting chip, to me, those are like manhole covers. When you put that down on the green and somebody else is behind you and has to putt, it's almost guaranteed that you have to ask them, hey, is this in your way? And most of the time, it is. And so some experienced golfers will keep at least two or three ball markers. You know, they'll have that betting chip, but they'll also have like a dime, a quarter, or even the ones I like are the flat little discs the size of a dime that have a nipple on them so you could push it in and it sticks in the ground. And then you tend, if, if it's there and it's in a golfer's way, he might actually use it if it's in front of his ball to use it as an aiming spot. and It doesn't get in anybody's way. Green repair tools are also common for golfers that fix their pitch marks on the green. But in today's day and age, a lot of golfers are using the back of their mallet putters to fix divots. It actually works even better. And you don't have to bend down, which is a plus in golf. Some golfers that walk also keep a scorecard in their back pocket, maybe a yardage book. If they smoke, sometimes they'll have their smokes with a lighter. And then they have their glove. And you wonder, with all of these things that everybody's carrying, why cargo pants aren't a thing in golf? Well, maybe because with all that stuff, it's just hard to swing a golf club. But you need it all. So here's what I carry when I'm on the course playing. In my golf bag in a compartment on the outside, I've got this Chivas Regal pouch that I guess Chivas Regal came in when I bought it a while ago. I'm not a Chivas fan. I'm more of a bourbon fan. But in there, I keep my tees. I keep my markers. I keep my gloves. I keep my divot repair tools, you know, things like that. And I tend to take out a few tees, probably more than I need, long tees and the short ones for when I'm you know, hitting irons, irons off the tee box or maybe a three wood. I'll bring a divot repair tool, but since I went out playing a few months ago and this guy, Gary Gilbert, who I talked about, taught me how to use the back of my mallet to fix the greens, I usually do that more and don't use the divot tool as much. And then I keep a glove in one pocket, and if I'm walking, I might have a scorecard in my back pocket, and that's it. And obviously, two balls. I always carry two balls because I know my golf. There is going to be a time somewhere during that round where I unintentionally sail the ball to a place where I can't retrieve it, which means I'm probably going to have to drop another ball from there or some other place. Either way... It prevents me from bending down into my bag to have that horrible negative chi that I talked about. So yeah, always two balls. And as soon as I put a ball down to hit it, I go into my bag and get out another ball. So I always have that second ball because you never know when you're going to have one of those rounds where things just don't go the way you plan them to go and it costs you a bunch of balls. And if you're more apt to have those types of rounds, please carry a second ball it just makes it better for everybody. I wanted to talk about the new rule, 4.3, that states that players and/or their caddies can use DMDs, distance measuring devices, or what we commonly called rangefinders. And they do that because yardage is universal. It's easy to step off. There are typically markers on the golf course. And so the time that it has taken caddies and players to walk off yardage, where they basically are coming up with the exact same number, allow them to use technology to speed up the game. And I know there are a lot of traditionalists who think, you know, why keep bringing technology into the game? The traditional game is the way it should be played. They have nothing against traditionalists. I think it's nice to have a game that keeps its integrity. One of the things I like about Charleston, downtown Charleston, is they've kept the integrity of the early and late 1700s downtown Charleston. And so I like that. Now, when it comes to sports and it comes to golf, I like technology. I like the technology of the aerodynamics for my tailor-made SimMax driver. I like the technology in the shaft. So collectively, I could hit the ball farther than I could have with older technology. I like the new balls, the three, four, five-piece balls that tend to spin less when you hit it off a driver and spin more when you hit it with an iron. That's like magic to me. And I was a huge ballada ball fan. And for those of you younger listeners that might not have ever experienced it, this ball had a cover on it. And it was actually inside of it, it was spun with all these different rubber bands, but it had this really soft cover. And it felt so good when you hit it right. And you could really feel it off your putter head. The problem with Balada is that after five or six holes, if you're really hitting the ball well, you start hitting it out around. round. And if a blotta ball hit a tree or a cart path, it's done. You can't hit a blotta ball once it's hit those. Even golf shoes are using technology to have a softer feeling on the bottom to go spikeless and just have these nubs on the bottom of the shoes that still give you traction when you're swinging a golf club. Imagine that shoes with technology. One of the biggest advances in technology is using all these different computer programs like TrackMan to help you fit yourself for golf clubs. Everybody has a different size. Everybody moves differently. Everybody swings a golf club differently because of their size. And so with technology now, you could actually go into these centers And I speak about David Ayers uh, Golf Center in another one of my podcasts where you could go in there and they have multiple different rooms where you could go in and they have you swing different clubs. And from that, they could pick up a lot of different information to help you decide which is the best club for you, which is the best shaft for you. Even the most ardent traditionalists find themselves in these golf training centers and these club fitting centers. Because technology is going to help them gain an advantage on their playing partners. Yeah, and so that brings me to range finders on the PGA. Why not? Why not use the technology available to speed up play? We're already using technology in other professional sports. We're using instant replay in the NFL, NCAA, NBA. We're using the Hawkeye system in tennis. And in soccer, FIFA, in, you know, they're using instant replay as well as like a video-assisted referee. So I think technology helps in a lot of different areas. In some of these other sports, it's about trying to make the referee calls fair. In golf, it's about speeding up play because it only makes sense. I mean, how often is a caddy and a player wrong about how far the yardage is to the pin? very rarely. What they might be wrong about is the elevation in which they're playing in, the way the wind is blowing, you know, how heavy the air is, all these other factors that maybe technology will help one day. But certainly range finders, I think it's a great idea. I carry a range finder as well as a Garmin GPS watch. So between the two of them, I pretty much have an idea of how far I have to hit it. And that happens right before I swing it and the ball goes in the water or into the woods. So technology at least informs you, but it certainly can't make you swing the club any better. Teaching pros in the PGA all have to go through this rigorous system of playing, teaching, filming themselves, competing, things like that to get to the next level and the next level. And hopefully what the levels translate to are higher income, more responsibility, and maybe even one day managing an entire golf club yourself. This past week, Justin Brown, one of our assistant pros, was working on one of these um, milestones he had to work through in the PGA, and he was filming a clinic where he had asked a few of us to join him. One of the clinics was about using the bounce on the bottom of your wedge to help hit the ball flush and have it spin and then stop on the greens. And I know I have bounce, but I've never really thought about it, nor have I practiced trying to hit the bounce into the ground right behind uh, the ball. Now, I think about it when I'm hitting sand shots, but I tend to use my leading edge on the bottom of my club to hit the ball, which doesn't always deliver the best results. So I was interested in listening to this lesson. And one of the things Justin talked about was the history of the bounce. And he was talking about how Walter Hagen had really developed this and used this um, to beat Bobby Jones. As a matter of fact, just a, a little factoid. Bobby Jones never went professional. He was an amateur. And there was a time in 1925 where he was considering becoming a pro. But back then, pros were not the same Uh, as they are today. Pros back then in the 1920s were thought of as like vagabond gamblers. So holy shit, that's just like my buddy Chip Jefferson. He could have been a pro back in the 1920s. But it's basically the amateurs were thought of golfers, you know, the gentlemen of the game were amateurs. And so being a pro, first of all, did not have the right uh, image for Bobby Jones. But he was really good, and it feels good to be a professional at anything you're good at. And so he has this uh, 72-hole playoff with Walter Hagen in 1925, and he thought this would be because Walter Hagen's a pro. He's a very well, he's a flashy guy, very well-known guy, and he actually has this match with Walter Hagen, and they're having this match play, and Walter Hagen beats him so badly. It was like um, after the first 12 holes of the match, Walter Hagen had won the first 12 holes and basically had him. So after that, I think Bobby Jones was so taken back and thought to himself, "Is if this is how the pros play and if this is what professional golf is like, yeah, I'll, st- I'll still be an amateur. And he won a lot. But Walter Hagen had developed this Um, this heavy sand wedge. And he basically had this concave spoon with this heavy flange on the back of it. And it was so effective, they actually outlawed it in the 1920s. Um, So, but then came Gene Saracen in 1930 and he started uh, soldering flanges on the back of his Niblick. How about that? A Niblick. I think I sold those when I was in the adult toy industry. I mean, who doesn't want extra weight on their Niblick? Yeah, so what Saracen figured out is by having this extra weight or this bounce on the back of your club, you in sand traps, you could actually come down into the sand behind the ball. And because of that weight, the club would go into the sand before the ball and then propel the ball in the air. I mean, before that professional and amateur golfers were actually hitting the ball first before they hit the sand just like you do on grass and I could tell you personally when I do that the ball comes flying out of the sand trap and can go 30 or 40 yards over the green so Walter Hagen and Gene Saracen thanks for the bounce and Justin Brown thanks for the clinic I think it's going to help I just got to practice just a little bit more You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.